First Kings chapter 21, page 364. Let's pray. Father God, we've sung our prayer already, inviting you to speak to us. We pray that you'd do that. And we pray that we'd listen. We'd look for those ways in which your Spirit is prompting us in our lives and in this congregation. Let us hear you and obey you. Amen. A nation will always take on the characteristics of the gods that it worships. So if we're a nation that worships money, we shouldn't be surprised if money takes over. How many news bulletins have you heard in the last two years that haven't talked about subprime mortgages, that credit crunch or quantitative easing? It seems just now that we cannot escape a preoccupation with money. Just this week we've had a a home office report telling us that our children are increasingly being exposed to, to sexual imagery earlier and earlier in their lives and that parents don't seem to be able to do anything to stop that. We shouldn't be surprised by this situation that we found ourselves in. A society that worships sex, that uses sex to advertise everything from cars to shampoo, is reaping the whirlwind. A nation always takes on the characteristics of the God that it worships. So far in our studies in 1 Kings, we've seen that idolatry is spreading its way through the life of God's people Israel. Uh, the, The prominent form of that idolatry is the worship of Baal, and we've seen that a few times in the last few chapters. This evening we're going to see what happens in a nation that worships idols. What's life like in that kind of a place? Since we're going to spend most of our time in chapter 21, we're skipping over chapter 20. I want to point out a couple of things that are there in chapter 20. If you want to to see it for yourself, probably best that you take a, a moment to read that whole chapter sometime. Chapter 20 tells the story of Ahab fighting against and defeating Ben-Hadad, king of Aram. Although, although Ahab is the worst of kings, and the narratives told us that very clearly, uh, we've seen that in the last chapters, God's not absent during the reign of Ahab, and that's very clear in chapter 20. In verse 13, we have a prophet of God coming to Ahab at the moment when he's about to face Aram in battle. And the prophet says, this is what the Lord says. Do you see this vast army? I'll give it into your hand today, and then you'll know that I am the Lord. I find this stuff quite weird. That you have a prophet of God coming to a a man who's living totally counter to God. And yet the prophet's able to say to him, listen, you're going to win this battle with God's help. Folks, that speaks to me very profoundly of the total sovereignty of God. God can, if he chooses, use an idolatrous king of Israel 
to, to defeat a pagan king. If he chooses to operate in that way, he can do it. He's not limited by the, the morality of Ahab, king of Israel. It's God's call to do that. We're reminded very quickly of another king's theme uh, about halfway through the chapter. In verse 23, we're given an insight into Ben-Hadad's war council. They're gathered around the king. They're explaining to him how the battle against Israel should go. And they advise him not to fight Israel in the mountains, in the hills, but to fight them on the plains. Because the gods... Are the gods of Israel, they say, are gods of the hills. The Arameans believe that Yahweh is a local deity, and we thought about this a couple of weeks ago. A local deity is one that only has power in his own jurisdiction when he's on his own patch. You can't fight Israel on the, on the hills because their god is the god of the hills. You'll have to bring them down and fight them on the plains. We've already seen how God made a total mockery of the the local deity theory. In chapter 17, you'll remember he was able to provide for for Elijah whenever he was in in the desert, but also when he was in Zarephath, right in the heart of, of pagan Sidon. So it comes as no surprise to us when we find that God, who's able to provide for for his people on the hills is also able to give them a resounding victory in the plains. God is in control. Total control. Of an idolatrous king of Israel and a pagan king of Aram. And his control extends to all places. Folks, one thing that I would love to learn and take away with me from our studies in 1 Kings is an unshakable confidence in the complete and every place sovereignty of God. By the time we get to the end of chapter 20, we see that all is not well. God has given Ahab victory over Aram. It looks like a very positive outcome. But a prophet ends up pronouncing God's judgment on Ahab. And the reason that's given is that Ahab didn't make his victory against Aram decisive. Ahab was supposed to end the threat of Aram decisively. And for him to do that, he he should have taken the life of Ben-Hadad. What does he do instead? Makes a treaty with him. A treaty that's going to make both of them into wealthy men. Ben-Hadad, why don't you continue to live? Why don't you continue to rule in Aram? And why don't we set up a few trade agreements that will make us both a lot of money? Ahab has given up on obeying God. He's given up on worshipping the God of Israel. He's not interested anymore. He's interested only now in making money and creating wealth. And that sort of sets the backdrop to everything that happens here in chapter 21. In chapter 21, Elijah comes back on the scene. He isn't around in chapter 20. And the reason that he comes back into the narrative is that God wants him to confront Ahab because of what's happened with Naboth's vineyard. Previously, 
Elijah's role was to confront Ahab's idolatry. This time he comes back to confront his greed and his corruption. The story is pretty simple and we're not going to labor it here this evening. Ahab wants this particular vineyard in Jezreel close to his palace. And Naboth, the owner, refuses to give it up. Just to help us understand that he's not just being difficult. He's not just holding out for a better price. He doesn't want to give up what he calls the inheritance of his fathers. And this is fundamental of the Old Testament understanding. That the law, that there was a law there that allowed that land belonged to families in perpetuity. Land always belonged to the families who originally had been given to it. This is the way God set things up. And if you imagine that kind of a rule, it's a rule that allows that all people will always be provided for. It's a rule that prevents some people from drawing all the land and all the resources of the country under their own control. It's a rule that was probably never perfectly practiced in Israel. But what a wonderful goal for God's people. That all people should share and that none should go hungry. So whenever Naboth refused to do what Ahab ordered him to, Naboth was acting justly. He was the one obeying the law of Israel. And he was the one confronted by the king of Israel to disobey the the law of the land. So now, here in chapter 21, we're going to get a, a sense of Ahab's sin. It's not just idolatry. It's an idolatry that spills over into to greed. He's got a taste for money. And I suppose as I, I was thinking about this passage, it seems to me likely that Ahab already has quite a lot. Ahab's not short of wealth. But he wants more. And he's not going to allow anything to stand in his way to prevent him from having more. Greed is a relentless master once it gets us under its control. There are a couple of interesting things here in the narrative. Ahab, we're told, wants the vineyard for a vegetable garden. The only other time that that Hebrew phrase, vegetable gardens, used in the Old Testament is in Deuteronomy 11. Listen to this. As the people prepare to enter into the promised land, God says, the land you're entering to take over is not like the land of Egypt from which you have come, where you planted your seed and irrigated it by foot as in a vegetable garden. The land you're crossing the Jordan to possess is a land of mountains and valleys that drinks rain from heaven. It's a land that the Lord your God cares for. The eyes of the Lord your God are continually on it from the beginning of the year till its end. God contrasts Egypt, the place that his people have just left, this vegetable garden of a place, this place that requires human care with the promised land, a place that he himself will care for. Notice too that Naboth's land is a vineyard. 
if you know anything about the Bibles, the Old Testament imagery, you'll know that the vineyard is a good place. I'm just smiling at the guys in the front row here. Um, the vineyard is an image that God uses time and time again to talk about his people living under his blessing, enjoying his love and his care. So you have Isaiah. He accuses the leaders of Israel. He says, the Lord enters into judgment against the elders and leaders of his people. It's you who have ruined my vineyard. The plunder from the poor is in your houses. Do you remember Jesus tells a parable of the tenants of the vineyard who rebel against the landlord? Landlord? Do you remember the story Jesus told where he likened his disciples to branches on a vine where he was the life-giving stem? Ahab, it seems, want to make a move from a vineyard to a vegetable garden. And that speaks of a symbolic move of his heart away from the place of God's blessing, the place that God nurtures and rules over, into a place where you you run the show yourself. You till the ground. You make it fertile. The, The place that's like Egypt. Ahab wants to move away from living under God's care to living under his own steam. And it's hardly surprising then that we find this king of Israel rejecting all the laws of the God of Exodus. He's besotted with Egypt. That's the way of life he's choosing. Friends, the Bible teaches that what you worship and how you live always go hand in hand. When we abandon God, we give up the right living that God calls us to. So in Ahab's Israel, we we shouldn't expect any morality When the king right at the center of that nation is leading them into idol worship, we shouldn't be surprised to find moral decay right at the nation's heart. So our chapter tells a story of lies and of murder and of deceit. Whenever Jesus spoke against greed and against a wrong relationship with money, I think he... He was as stark on this issue as he could possibly have been. He basically pitted money against God. And he told us we could worship one or the other. He told us that we would have to make that choice. No one can serve two masters. Either he'll hate one and love the other... Or he'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Ahab gives us an idea of what life looks like once we start to serve money. We start to trample on the rights of others. We don't care about their well-being. Because they stand in the road of us having more, us getting more, us maximizing our wealth. Jesus is right. It's impossible to serve God and money. 
Folks, I think it's it's with God's providence that Alan's been here this evening to talk to us about storehouse, to talk to us about the experiences that he's had and the things that they have been learning in their church family. As we learn about things like storehouses, we enter into these new practices, we're being helped, I think. We're being rehabilitated away from our addiction to money. Every time we sacrifice a few quid to buy some groceries to put in the trolley out there, we're freeing ourselves just a little bit further from that grip that mammon has over us. Every time we give to to ministries that are there to bless the poor, we reverse the, the trend of this culture. We say that we will not bow before that idol. Well, actually, I'm not sure that we say that. I think we're saying that though we currently are bowing on our knees before that idol, we're, we're trying to get to our feet. And we're trying to walk away. Money is not God. And these steps that we're learning to take are steps that rehabilitate us from our idolatry. Folks, don't be cynical. Don't line up your excuses for why you don't want to be involved in this ministry or that ministry. Look for the steps that God's calling you to turn your back on the idol of wealth and pursue them. The rest of the chapter here tells the story of Ahab's corruption and Elijah bringing judgment on him. Ahab uses an SS-style tactic. He trumps up false charges against Naboth, has them pressed, and then executes them. Then he takes the vineyard. When Elijah comes to confront the, the corrupted king, he confirms our suspicion that this is all about greed. Uh, the language here in the chapter shows us that. In verse 20, he says, I found you because you have sold yourself to do evil in the eyes of the Lord. There's a transaction of the heart that's gone on. In verse 25, the narrator confirms that there was never a man like Ahab who sold himself to do evil in the eyes of the Lord, urged on by Jezebel, his wife. He sold himself. He became so much less than he might have been because he was willing to settle for more. A little more money, a little more property, a little more wealth, a little more stuff. Folks, every time you and I deal with the money that crosses our path, we we make transactions of the heart. We can choose to use the gifts and resources that God gives us to bring health and blessing and well-being. Or we can sell ourselves. Ahab sold himself. 
Just a last aspect to this quick look this evening at the life of Ahab. It's important to recognize here that Ahab's Israel's king. He's the leader. He's the one responsible for the well-being of his people. He's the one whose example they're called to follow. And 1 Kings paints a picture of Ahab's leadership that shows it entirely corrupted. And folks, I'm conscious as I speak to a congregation like this that many of us are leaders in some sphere or another. Some of us have that leadership in our homes others in our workplaces or here in church or or some other walk of life. And I wonder how we're exercising that responsibility that God has given us. Ahab's a really, really stark picture of what happens when you use God-given leadership and responsibility for your own ends. This is what it ends up looking like. That authority, that power that's been given you simply becomes a vehicle for your own ends, your own selfishness, your own purpose. Is that the kind of leadership we want to give or are we committed to serving those who are under our care? And I don't mean anything very fancy by that. I simply mean saying to ourselves, what's best for these people? How can I... Help them discover it. Are are we looking for ways to bless others rather than ourselves? Is our greatest desire as leaders to see people flourish? Folks, as we conclude this evening, it strikes me that tonight, it's it's like so many times in, in this book of Kings, The repeated and ongoing failures of Israel's kings, they seem to serve no purpose at all. You know, what can you learn from Ahab? You don't learn anything from Ahab. It seems to me that the only thing that Ahab can do for us in the biblical narrative is to increase our desperation for a good king. When we see a corrupt king like him, we we long to see a better king. When there's so much that's bad, we long for one who's good. Seeing so much that's, that's wrong with this world can only increase our appetite for someone who can make it all right. When I see Ahab's greed, it makes me long for a king who doesn't exploit people. A humble kind of a king. With no wealth. Or need of wealth. Maybe even one who had nowhere to lay his head. A homeless person. Ahab's oppression of his people makes us long for a king who would, who would take care of of the the lowliest and most vulnerable of his subjects. The kind of king who grew up among peasants. A king who came not to be served, but to serve. A king who would go as far as to give his life for his people. 
and, and who did. Folks, when I read these accounts in Kings, of these men who were called to lead God's people, I thank God for Jesus. Thank God for a king untainted by idolatry, a king who had no greed in his life, a king who led his people in ways that were good for them, that blessed them, brought them into a life that's rich and real and good. Folks, if it's true that a nation is shaped by the idols that it worships, then it's also true that a nation can be shaped by the true and living God, if only it will worship him. Jesus is the only person, the only thing in this entire universe that you can worship without harming your soul. You see, we end up looking like the thing we worship. Folks, Jesus is the only one we can worship and know that our worship will be good for our souls and make us into the people that God wants us to be. Jesus calls us to leave our idols behind, to bow before him and to follow him. And so we sing our closing hymn. Jesus. All for Jesus. All I am and have and ever hope to be. Jesus. All for Jesus. Let's stand and, and sing together.